The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. By early 2006, Brandy Matthews had realized it was time to take control of her future. The young Missouri mother had spent years trying to turn her life around. Brandy knew it was time to stop being a victim for the sake of both herself and her young son Caleb. Unfortunately, like countless other women, Brandy had become trapped in a cycle of abuse, and in September of 2006, Brandy disappeared, leaving behind a distraught family who refused to give up on finding answers. Join me now as we look into the sudden disappearance of Brandy Matthews. You'll hear how her loved ones fought against all odds to find her, never giving up hope. Even in the midst of Brandy's case growing cold, you'll learn how law enforcement eventually played a crucial role in ensuring justice was served. Ultimately coming to an end, following a string of chance circumstances, or what Brandy's mother considered, could have only been accomplished by the hand of God. In 1983, when Dina was 20 years old, it was more than a little bit of a surprise when she discovered she was pregnant. Living in Missouri, she traveled to Arkansas for the weekend to visit her parents with her husband, Mark, when she suddenly felt deathly ill. I was so sick that day, so I remember telling Mark that I needed to go to the doctor because I knew I had a fatal disease. I didn't know whether it was cancer or what, but I had never been sick like that before, and I knew that I was dying. So my mom ended up taking me up to the city doctor, and uh, I was telling him that I was sick, and I lived in Missouri, and that I knew that there was something bad wrong, and... So in a little while, they came back, and they was laughing and, and told me I was pregnant. <laughs> On October 31st, when Dina was in her seventh month of pregnancy, she headed to her doctor for a routine appointment. But after her doctor left the room and didn't come back for some time, Dina became concerned. When he finally did come back, he informed her that he had called for an ambulance and she needed to go to a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, because she had developed preeclampsia. Dina's husband, Mark, arrived at the hospital to find his wife hooked up to an IV, 
and prepped for surgery. The doctor then informed both Dina and Mark that if they didn't act immediately, their baby might not make it. They were also told that once she was born, because she was so early, her lungs may not be fully developed. But after the rush and shock of having surgery, Dina was astonished by how beautiful and precious her tiny baby was. Despite Brandy struggling with some health issues in the beginning, her determination and happy personality shone bright from the start. She was born at 12.02, November 1st, and she was tiny. She was 2 pounds, 13 ounces. I could only see pictures of her for the first two weeks because I was in intensive care. Whenever I finally got to hold her, she was just the most beautiful baby and precious. And she was so strong. It's like you could see just her determination and her eyes. She was... And she was in the hospital for a month and eight days before she was allowed to come home. When Brandy was very young, her unique nature manifests itself in a spiritual way. She often talked about seeing Jesus and having a connection with family members who had passed. This gift lasted throughout her childhood and touched the hearts of those around her. She was about a little over one year old. She would say things that would, like, catch me off guard. She was just starting to talk, and one day we was going to town, and she was asleep in her car seat, and then she woke up, and she said, Mama, where is he? And I said, Where is who? And she said, Jesus, I went to sleep sitting in his lap, and when I woke up, he was gone. In the evening, she would look up at the sky and say, there's her Grandma Hale star. And she was like that for the biggest part of her childhood years. In 1986, Brandy's brother Colby was born. Brandy loved Colby immensely. They were extremely close, and Brandy was protective of her kid brother. She also appreciated spending time with her family, enjoying fishing with her brother and her dad. She would often laugh and try to show them up by catching more fish than them. But life for Brandy changed when her mother and father got divorced in 1991. Brandy needed to become more independent, and Dina made sure that her daughter and her younger brother were both prepared. In the midst of the upheaval, the three of them remained a closely knit family, spending lots of time together. They relied on one another and confided in each other. So me and Brandy, we had always been close and she would always tell me I was her best friend and she would just confide in me things and, you know, we would talk through her problems. By 2002, Brandy's mom got married to a wonderful man named Dennis and was spending a lot of time with her husband, driving truck across the country. Colby was living on his own, while 18-year-old Brandy had gotten married to a man named Bobby Matthews. In April 2003, she gave birth to a beautiful little boy they named Caleb. Not long into their marriage, Brandy and Bobby's relationship had become rocky. In fact, it became abusive. The very same year Caleb was born, 
Brandy decided to leave Bobby, taking her son with her so she could try to build them a better life. After they separated, Brandy moved in with her dad in order to try to put some space between her and her ex. She also enrolled in a community college, aspiring to one day become a marine biologist. But above all else, she wanted to give her son Caleb the best possible life she could. But it wasn't easy for the young single mom. She struggled to make enough money to even make ends meet. She was beginning to realize that her lofty goals were harder to achieve than she imagined. Eventually, a friend who saw Brandy having a rough time began talking to her about an opportunity that would solve all of her problems. It was an unconventional job that would allow her to go to school during the day and work in the evenings. What she was referring to was exotic dancing, but it would only be for a short term until Brandy could get through school and find a secure paying job. At first, Brandy struggled to justify her decision to both herself and others. Dina, who had always been a supportive mom, heard Brandy out. She wanted to be supportive of her daughter's choices, but understandably had her concerns. I told her, I said, Brandy, I said, you have lived a very sheltered life. You don't realize what you're getting into. And she said, oh, I can handle it, Mom. She said, and it would only be temporary. She said, I wouldn't want Caleb to start school and me be doing it. So she said, I would be quitting before he started school. And she was very kind of paranoid about anybody knowing. So she was kind of decided to live a secret life. And she told me, she said, you know, a lot of women do it. She said, there's lawyers that have done it to get through school and doctors. And she said, it, it'll be okay. And so Brandy started working at a gentleman's club and hated it from the start. But as she began to rely on the money she was earning, she felt she had to stick with it. After working for only a few months, Brandy fell into a relationship with a DJ who worked at the same club, a man by the name of Kelly Simino, who pretty much pursued her from day one. He told her he owned a window cleaning business, and that he only supplemented his income by DJing. After a couple of months, Brandy moved in with Kelly, and that was when her life became a nightmare. Soon after she started living with Kelly, Brandy realized he wasn't the kind of man she had first thought. It turned out that DJing wasn't the only prospect helping to supplement his income. Kelly was also a drug dealer, along with being a meth user. Brandy had always been against drugs and didn't take the news well. Before long, Kelly had started abusing Brandy, mentally physically, and emotionally. Once they started living together, he was a psychopath. And I don't mean that just as something to call him. He was literally a psychopath. He started taking control of her mind. It was just the most bizarre thing to see, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. It was heart-wrenching for Brandy's mom to hear about the abuse her daughter was experiencing, and she felt utterly helpless to do anything about it. 
son, Caleb, come down, and he had knocked her around and put bruises on her. So for like three days, he had her and Caleb had locked in the bedroom until the bruises went away to where she couldn't report them. Tina firmly believes that Brandy hadn't suspected Kelly of ever hurting Caleb because she was positive she would have moved out immediately. Brandy's son meant the absolute world to her. Tina, on the other hand, was suspicious that he had, and he was doing it when Brandy wasn't around. Kelly had been fired from his DJ job for causing trouble with one of the customers and other staff members. Since then, he was at home more often, looking after Caleb in the evenings, while Brandy worked. Dina recalled one time when she was watching Caleb that caused concerns. Caleb, he would love to take baths, and he would just play when he was at the house in the bathtub, and, you know, we had a lot of toys and everything. And so after probably six months into after they had moved in together, we had Caleb for the weekend, and I went to give him a bath, and he went to screaming and crawled over my head trying to get out of the water. So my thought was that he had held him under or something that scared him and he wouldn't take a bath. Dina pleaded with Brandy to leave her abusive boyfriend and to quit her job at the club. Brandy realized she was losing herself and that Kelly was manipulative and controlling. But she felt trapped. It was then that she called her mother with a plan to take back control of her life. So one night she called me and she said, I'm going to start sending you money to put in a savings account for me so that I can get away from this DJ. She didn't think it was safe for her daughter to spend another minute in the presence of Kelly and continued to beg her to leave, even offering her to stay with her. So I told her, we can get you away from him now if you need to. She said, I've got it all worked out. She would call me back and she would say, you know, I couldn't send you any money because at this point he was still working there as a DJ and he was taking her money. Like every few hours he would come up and take her money and he wasn't giving her a chance to even have any money. When her first plan failed, Brandy finally accepted her mom's offer. So she called me one night, and it was almost Christmas, and she said, I'm coming to your house. And I said, okay, come on. And so she had left him, and her and Caleb come down and spent Christmas with us, and we talked, and she was going to stay away from him. And we told her, just stay here as long as you need to or want to. I said, it helps us, too, because we was gone for four to six weeks at a time. And I said, we'll pay the, the rent, we'll pay the utilities. You just worry about you and Caleb. Brandy then got a position through a temp agency working at a computer repair store. It wasn't her dream job, but it was a decent paying one that had potential of transitioning into a full-time position. She was beginning to get her life in order 
and Dina was overjoyed to have her daughter and her grandson in her home. But Kelly refused to let Brandy go. While she was staying with her mom, he found out where she was and began to stalk her. After only a month of being away from Kelly, Brandy was manipulated into moving back with him. He promised her things would be different, and she wanted to believe him, not realizing it was an empty promise, and rather, a part of the cyclical abuse she had been experiencing. Brandy packed up her things again, and moved her and Caleb back in with Kelly. But even after Brandy moved back, Kelly would still regularly call to threaten Dina and her family. I got a call, and it was this guy, and he said, you don't think I know where you live? He said, I'm sitting outside your house right now, and he said, as soon as all the lights go down, I'm going to burn the house down. And I told him, I said, well, you don't have to sit outside. Come on in. He would call me all hours of the night on the truck, and he would just sit there. When Brandy returned back to living with Kelly, things didn't get any better. In fact, it got worse. Dina remembers one very upsetting call she received from her daughter. She was calling from a payphone in, in Sedalia, Missouri, and the guy had locked her and Caleb out of the house, and it was in the middle of winter, and they didn't have coats, they didn't have shoes. And I told her to call the police department and have them take her and Caleb to a shelter. She called the police and they took her to the house to get her shoes and coats and stuff. And then they took her over to a women's shelter. But she tried to tell them that he was doing drugs and everything. So the officer kind of searched the house and everything, the apartment, and he told her on the way to the, to the women's shelter, he said, I find it really hard to believe that if you know that he's doing drugs, that you're not doing them. And she said, I am not doing drugs. And she said, I'm trying to get away from him. And so it was more like the officer was more blaming her when he should have been thinking, well, you know, maybe she needs some help. Brandy did need help, but every time she attempted to leave, Kelly would up the ante. There seemed to be no limit to the lengths he would go in order to get Brandy back under his control. One time, Brandy had escaped again to her mother's when Kelly made a very disturbing and horrific call to Dina's home. A phone call that still haunts her to this day. He um, called one time when Brandy had left and he had Brandy's dog and he was actually killing her dog on the phone. And that was the worst sound I have ever heard. By the spring of 2006, Brandy realized she had to take control of her life once and for all. She told her mom the only way she and her family would ever be safe was if Kelly was behind bars. That's when she reached out to the local police and offered to work with them. Kelly belonged in prison, and Brandy was going to do whatever she could in her power 
to make that happen. The authorities had been trying to bring in Kelly on drug charges for ages, but never had been able to gather enough evidence. Brandy started working with the Elgin Police Department. She called me and she told me what was going on. And she said, I'm bringing Caleb down and I'm going to leave him with her grandma, which is my mom. And she said, but I'm telling this guy that he is with you and Dennis on the truck to keep him safe and keep him out of it. So I agreed and I called my mom and my sisters and my stepdaughter and gave everybody heads up that Caleb was coming down and that we needed to do the best we could to bounce him around to help my mom take care of him. Everything appeared to be going as planned. Brandy's family was watching Caleb while she was able to provide the police with the intel they needed to make their move on Kelly. Brandy called me a little later on and she said, okay, they made the stop and they took him to jail and they told me to go file a restraining order against him because chances are it won't be too long before he's bailed out. So she went to Sedalia and done a restraining order and the secretary there had her to fill out the restraining order and she had to give the judge reasonable cause for him to grant the restraining order. So the secretary had her put on the restraining order that she was working with the police and to get him arrested because he was a drug dealer. So Brandy filled it out and it went to the judge and he signed it. What Brandy had done was incredibly brave, but an error in the judicial system turned a protective order into a death sentence for her. When they served him the papers, they messed up and they served him the papers where the secretary had told her to write that she was working with the police. She was with me whenever he did bond out and he called her and I could hear him calling her names and told her, he said, I will kill you. He said, you set me up. Dina told Brandy to deny having anything to do with it, but that did little to calm Kelly down. Instead, his threats against both Brandy and her family continued, and now he was furious. Then he was making threats, you know, that he was going to kill Brandy and Caleb, and he was going to kill us. I consider myself a very strong person and very strong-willed, and through that time of knowing him, just all the calls at night and the not knowing, you know, if it was Brandy or worrying about her and Caleb being with him, and it was starting to take a toll on me. And it was getting to where I would have anxiety just from not knowing. And it was getting hard to do my job driving truck because my mind was back on her. Dina had been looking after Caleb while Brandy was sorting some things out back in Missouri when she got a call from her. Dina was in complete shock when she learned of Brandy's latest decision. 
So me and Dennis, we had left for California, and we got to about New Mexico, and Brandy called me, and she said, I'm coming to get Caleb. And I said, what do you mean you're coming to get Caleb? And she said, well, with Kelly out of jail and everything, he hasn't bothered me, so I'm just going to go on with life, like, without him. And So the way she was talking, it was just really not Brandy and so the more I talked to her, the more I realized that her and Kelly was back together and Kelly was with her. So I told her, which was the hardest thing I ever in my life had to do, was tell her that she's not getting Caleb. And I always thought that I had control of things and, you know, my kids would call me to help me figure their life's problems out. But I was in the cab of a truck going to the West Coast, and there was nothing I could do about anything. That was one time that God showed me that I did not have control of what I thought that I could control. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't drive. Dennis had to drive, and I was just a basket case. Dina knew she needed to hide Caleb from Brandy and Kelly, and she reached out to the rest of her family to help by moving him around from house to house. But Brandy and Kelly knew that might be what Dina had arranged and headed straight to her grandmother's house, demanding she hand over Caleb. Mom said, I don't have Caleb. And so Brandy called the police, and the guy that was with her was hiding in the woods while Brandy was supposedly getting Caleb. And so he came out of the woods and the cop talked to him and talked to Brandy and talked to mom. And so he told Brandy and this guy that they needed to leave and that Caleb wasn't there. And if they wanted to press charges or whatever against me, then then they could. That was all he could do was tell them that they had to leave. But then once they left, he told my mom, he said, I don't know where he's at. I don't want to know where he's at. But all I want to tell you is don't take him across state lines. And if his father is available, get him to his father because he has he can have legal custody. Caleb's father, Bobby Matthews, who is now living in Oklahoma, hadn't had a relationship with his son since he and Brandy had split. But Dina knew she had to take a shot and give him a call. She needed to keep Caleb away from Kelly, and Bobby's home was sure to be the last place they would think to look. So I hadn't talked to him in forever, and for some weird reason I still had his number in my phone, and and I called it, and he answered, and And I said, you have got to get to Arkansas. I said, call my mom and make arrangements to pick up Caleb. So he makes a beeline over to pick up Caleb and takes him back to Oklahoma. The next day, he called me in a panic and he said, Brandy, and that guy's pulling in. Because we told him what car, you know, what kind of car they, they was driving and everything. And I said, you have got to hide Caleb. He said, I already have. And he said, what do I do? And I said, just play dumb. They cannot know that Caleb is there. So 
So Brandy got on the phone with me when they came in, and, and she told me, she said, I want my son. And I said, Brandy, I said, you and Caleb both are in danger. Come home and we'll figure it out. I said, I'm not trying to keep Caleb from you. I'm trying to keep you both safe. And she said, you know that saying that I always told you? And I said, yeah. She'd always told me I was her best friend. And she said, that's not true anymore. It was now September 2006, and sadly, that difficult discussion regarding Caleb's custody would be the last time Dina would ever talk to her daughter again. Dina figured Brandy would eventually move past any hard feelings and understand why she needed to do what she did. But weeks went by, and there was no word from Brandy. In fact, no one had heard from her or seen her, behavior that was extremely unusual for Brandy. No matter how tough times had been in the past, their family had always remained in contact and helped each other out when needed. Every day that passed, Brandy's mom became sick with worry that Kelly had done something to her daughter. She felt it was time to file a missing persons report and get the police to investigate where she had gone. I would go to the police department in Arkansas and I would go to the police department in Missouri and they would just tell me, well, it's not against the law for an adult to disappear and she's probably just mad at you because you kept her son from you, which you had no right to do. And I tried to explain to them that, you know, there's something wrong. No matter how many times Dina went to the police, she was always told the same thing. Dina felt completely helpless. She knew deep down something was terribly wrong, but couldn't seem to convince the authorities to do anything about it. But Dina never stopped searching for her daughter. I would look in cars for different states and there was a girl with her back to us and it looked just like Brandy and uh, I about jumped out of my seat and then she turned around and it wasn't her. I've talked to different mothers and I've missing children and it's like you're searching the world for them. Brandy's mom eventually took matters into her own hands and started to reach out to anyone who might have seen Brandy. Dina got in touch with Brandy's friends and acquaintances, and even contacted the places her daughter frequented. As a result of her inquiries, she learned that no one had any contact with Brandy since mid-September, and the last confirmed sighting of her had been either September 22nd or 23rd, 2006, at the home where she had once shared with Kelly. While she was out searching for Brandy, Caleb's dad felt it was too much for him to continue looking after his son full-time, so Dina stopped driving truck and took full custody of him. Even though Brandy was no longer around for Kelly to torment, he still continued to terrorize the family, which made Dina constantly afraid of her loved one's safety. From the time that we quit hearing from her 
probably for about the next six months, I would still get phone calls. Somebody would just sit there and and it would be all hours of the night or day or so it just really kept me uneasy about leaving Caleb anywhere or when he went to school I made sure that they knew that nobody could pick him up but me and it was just a mental game that he was putting us through. After eighteen long months of living in fear and conducting her own investigation, Dina was finally able to gather enough information to convince the Osage Beach Police Department to give Brandy's disappearance the attention it deserved. A missing persons file was finally opened in 2008, two years after Brandy had first gone missing. The detective who took on Brandy's case still recalls what first brought his attention to the case. And as a detective, we, you know, kind of went through all the cases that were came in, you know. Sometimes some cases would get assigned to us, and some cases we'd look at and we would recognize people or recognize trends, and so we would pull that case. We'd, I was doing that, and I saw this case, and it was a, a missing persons case. Reporting party resided in Arkansas. The Osage Beach detective was impressed by Dina's determination and felt awful that she had had such a difficult time bringing any attention to her daughter's disappearance. She had tried to get others to take the, the missing persons report, you know, Arkansas and places in between. I think they all told her that she had to make the report where she was last seen at. Well, the last time she'd been seen was quite a while before. And I, I felt so bad for her, I really did. I asked the chief at the time, you know, if I could work the case. And he said, yeah, see what you can do with it. And I was like, okay. And that's just kind of what started it. When the detective heard all the details of the case, he found it hard to believe Brandy would have just run off and abandoned her young son, especially after hearing Dina explain how unusual that behavior was for her. Caleb was Brandy's world. Unfortunately, I've heard other agencies and other officers that when they go and make a missing persons report, they would tell them, you have to go to the place where she was last seen or he was last seen, the missing person. A lot of them had worked under this false pretense that you had to wait X number of hours before making a missing persons report. Well, obviously, that was a mute point in this because she hadn't heard from her in almost two years. I don't know. It just kind of struck me. There was just something about it. A mom doesn't walk away from her toddler for a year and a half. The detective was suspicious from the start that something terrible had happened to Brandy, and one of the first things he did was look closely at her inner circle. Unfortunately, the last I remember, like 80% of all crimes are committed by somebody you know. I mean, if you're a victim, the statistics are just astronomical. So you can pretty well start within that realm, and statistically, 80% of the time, you're going to be right. When we start digging into it, you ask those questions. Who's their friends? Who would they call? Who would they contact? Who did they hang around with? Those type of things. And, you know, obviously one of them is, do they have a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, are they married, divorced? So looking at the ones involved, it was no secret. You know, Dina told us what Brandy did and kind of lifestyle she was involved in. And we're looking at the people involved were known to law enforcement in those other agencies. They knew of them because of the, you know, the drug activity and prior criminal history. That obviously creates a different things you got to look at. For example, motives, behavior, circles of friends they run with, things like that. The investigation into Brandy's disappearance 
spanned multiple states and jurisdictions and involved significant interagency cooperation and an exhausting amount of legwork. Even though two years had passed without an arrest in the case, the detective was slowly but surely breaking down the lies and getting to the truth about what had really happened to Brandy. Kelly was, of course, one of the main focuses of the investigation. By all accounts, he was a controlling and abusive man, and Brandy had reported at least six domestic assaults involving Simino beginning in January 2006 through to August across several law enforcement jurisdictions. We did what we call a soft interview with, I don't want to call him a primary suspect, obviously he's a woman at the time, but with the uh, person that we knew for sure last had contact with her. At that point, we couldn't call him a suspect because we, he was just the last person known to be with her. We knew they had a, a rocky relationship. At that point, we didn't have any reason to call him a suspect. So we did a soft interview to kind of open up the dialogue, you know, and talk. And we took that information and we started breaking that information down and actually scrutinizing every little piece of it to see how much of it was true. And I tried to identify the parts of that story that were that were false. In other words, it, we kind of had to work it from the back end because we didn't really have a lot of evidence. We didn't have a scene. The only thing the detective and his team had was Kelly, the last person to see Brandy. Because Brandy had filed her protective order in another county and had made calls about domestic assault across several jurisdictions, the detective had yet to have that information in his hands. He did the only thing he could do, and that was to set out and track down the details of Kelly's story, which would either prove or disprove itself. The information Kelly provided sent them off in various directions across state lines, including to Oklahoma, where Brandy and Kelly had gone in search for Caleb. And so we were able, actually able to contact the agency center because they needed gas. And they got a gas voucher from the local church. And so we started just taking every little piece of it and every detail of that path, that information that we got in that soft interview, and started taking it apart a piece at a time, a piece at a time, to figure out which parts of it were true and at what point the story didn't match up with what really happened. Countless days were spent checking out stories and receipts. Witness statements were cross-checked. And slowly but surely, the truth was beginning to emerge. Because Brandy had filed her protective order in another county, it took a while before the detective realized what occurred when Kelly had been served his papers in jail. I don't even know. There's not even a team put that into words. I'm not sure where the hiccup occurred at that point. I don't even know what county it was. But that's where you get the restraining orders from the, on the county level here. And yeah, she filled out the application and somehow, uh, whether it's by somebody's just, I don't know, just a, a dumb mistake or what happened, but yeah, he got a copy of that. Revenge is always considered a motive. Revenge is always considered a motive when it comes to any heinous act. And as the detective was beginning to close his net around Kelly, he received a call late one night from Miller County. Mm -hmm. 
Listen to part two, where you'll learn how the call the detective received would drastically change the course of the investigation. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. RM250, Nicole B, Wendy L, Patricia S, Sherry, Bryn F, and Fallon. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Beyond Contempt True Crime. I'm Renee, and this is Beyond Contempt True Crime. I'll take you on a journey and tell you stories that you've never heard before. Stories like Amy Bishop, Professor Turned Mass Murderer, Ruben Borkart, the victim of a murder-for-hire plot, and the tragic murder of Margaret Anderson, which rocked the small community of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And Cold Girls. Every year, one and a half to three million women go missing. As of right now, there are over 200,000 unsolved murder cases in America, which is more than the population of some towns. Many of these cases involve women. This is Cold Girls, the podcast focusing on cold cases of missing and murdered women across North America. Join me weekly as we try to uncover and shed light on the mysteries that intrigue us all. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E.